Hi, I'm Pete Seligman, and this is season four of my podcast, The Next Step. This year, we hosted the first ETA forum at Manly Beach in Sydney, Australia. So in this season of the podcast, I'll be sharing with you the audio from each session of the forum. At the beginning of each episode, I'll provide an intro to the speakers, and then at the end, I'll share with you the key messages and insights that I took from each presentation. If you were there on the day, these episodes will provide a good opportunity to reflect on your learning. If you weren't able to join us this time, even though you missed the networking, these episodes are a good summary of the content shared at the event. I hope you enjoy them. It almost becomes a little bit how we were talking about debt and how you define what debt is and how do you define the ratios for debt because capital intensity can be defined lots of different ways you know, from the proportion of the assets that make up the purchase price. If there's lots of fixed assets that make up the entirety of the purchase price, it actually is more fundable. You know, you, if they are movable assets, so you can get different forms of asset finance. When it starts turning into more of an operational phase, and the question's not around capital intensity, it's more around how efficient does the earnings fall through to cash. So ultimately, what makes a deal backable? Why would the investors be interested in putting their money into an acquisition that you bring to them as a searcher? In this session at the ETA Forum in 22, we had moderator Paige Kahalmi. She's a searcher, or she was at the time, maybe by the time you listen to this, she's a CEO. And she moderated a panel including Tom McGee, who's a debt advisor, Sahil Sakar, who's a searcher and also an investor, and Louis Pangiarella, who is the founder of Second Squared and also of Wayfair, which is a fund that invests in search. So three different perspectives or four different perspectives, including pages on what might make a deal backable and a really interesting kind of discussion around the things that both searchers and investors should consider. So one other sort of note, if you go onto the website, you'll see that you can grab the slide deck that's associated with this presentation. So obviously you can just listen along and take the points as you go, but if you get a chance to follow along with the slide deck, that'll help you look at some of the examples that they're bringing to light. Now I'm gonna leave you as we jump straight in with Tom's perspective on what are the core kind of bases of the credit risk decision when it comes to providing debt finance to an acquisition in the search space. I'll see you after the session. The equity risk gets to participate in the upside. It gets the return. The debt risk is capped, right? It's probably between three and four and a half percent kind of margin. That's all they're earning. And so when we think about the subjective placement of, of that line, we're actually trying to define the difference between the two. So how is that related to a searcher? Well, the most important thing in deciding whether a deal is backable from a debt perspective and where we should place that debt line is actually the searcher, the people involved. And when we say searcher, it's the ecosystem of support. It's the capability of the people. It's the knowledge. I think that list of five kind of calls it out quite clearly. They're the people that are ultimately going to address what needs to be done in the business to solve the problems as things invariably don't go to plan. Um, it always happens in some shape or form, hopefully like a swimming duck with a lot of stuff happening underneath and everything looks fine on top. But the reality is it's not a spreadsheet that will define that outcome or a model or any kind of analysis that we do uh, at this stage if we haven't got the first part right.
which ultimately is the searcher, the capability, the ecosystem around them, and ultimately what that is often referred to is the character. So character absolutely is the most important thing that we look at when we start thinking about what is the debt requirement for this deal. Awesome. I'm going to come back to the interplay between the three different elements a little bit um, as well. But just going on to the opportunity. Um, so when we're talking opportunity, we're looking at the business and the deal terms and, and those interrelation as well. Um, so Hill, when searching now as an investor, what are you looking for in terms of the opportunity and that decision-making process as to whether you will back or you want to be involved in that deal? Yeah. Um, Hello, everyone. I, I think <laughs> it, it, it's I'm not going to tell the, the, the audience how to suck an egg. I guess like, there's a lot of people in the audience who've probably seen many deals and opportunities and have their own way of thinking about it. But I guess, you know, one one framework that that, you know, one way of thinking about it, I guess, is at the end of the day, you're looking for a fundamentally stable cash flow generative asset. Um, um, and and I think, you know, th those are good, good criteria. You may also think about, you know, obviously just the industry. Is this an industry you want to get into? Um, uh, is there a good outlook? Is it stable? Is it cyclical? You might think about the business itself. Um, and, and, you know, it's interesting in search, I think often, um, both as a searcher, and I think as, a, as an investor too, you're trying to protect the downside. You're really trying to protect um, reduce business risk because there is a bit of operator risk. There's a bit of a transition in owner operator. So you're trying to really protect against that downside. So on the business, you might look at, you know, the scale and, and kind of if there's enough return there, but then particularly the resilience um, and, and metrics like um, repeat, re repeat revenue or recurring revenue, um, customer concentration, things you, things you might think would affect that cash flow generation in the future. Um, you might look at the the cash flow generation itself, the margins, the cash conversion, um, um, and, and your ability to grow that over time. So I think maybe that's all on the, on the business. Um, and then there's the deal itself. So, you know, the, the price, the structure, the terms, and, and the returns that allows you to capture, both as a searcher and as an investor. Um, uh, but I think there is also maybe from a searcher point of view, there's just a personal, personal thing about it. Um, Will you be able to get up in the morning and run this business? And will you enjoy having lunch with the people you're working with? And, and it's a massive part of your, it is your life basically once you start operating. So there is that personal element to it as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's other good characteristics up there and I'm sure all investors and searchers in the room also have their own, but it's fundamentally, is it a stable cash flow generating asset? Yeah. Um, and, and Louis, on, the, on that opportunity and this particular structure, uh, what's your perspective and what's the reasoning behind this type of opportunity that we're looking at from your perspective as an investor? Yeah, so it actually does come back to the word that Seahills used, which is resilience. So the recurring revenue piece, which is what we would put as number one, is if the businesses have got 90% recurring revenue, you know that you're going to survive next year. You know, it's as simple as that. It's why project-based businesses don't work in search because if you don't replace the revenue that disappears, you've got a failure. Um, the recurring revenue one is the one that we look at as being most um, related to resilience. The next one is actually EBITDA margins and the efficiency that the EBITDA falls to cash. So those three are really the measures of, of your resilience. Um, the one that is probably new that's being talked about a lot amongst the international investor community in search 
is the, is the last bullet point, which is something that up until a year ago, we didn't hear anything about. Um, no one cared about inflation. No one cared about the risk of a recession. Um, but I know now that when we're having conversations with international investors about some of the opportunities that our searchers are seeing, the first question they ask is, can it, can it pass on cost increase? And it seems like a logical question, just not one that was even, would even be in the framework of the first four, um, in part because we've come out of that long, kind of low inflation environment. We haven't had the risk of a recession that we've got now. So that dis dislocation, the f there's another part to this, which is around just it's, it's um, the business's reliance on international trade. So we're hearing more and more from the international investors that they're concerned about that, especially the ones in the US, because they're dealing with it. Um, we have less of a concern, but just be prepared. If you're a searcher, be prepared for those questions when it's coming. But that's, a, that's essentially our, the list that we go through every time we do a, a deal evaluation with a searcher. And from a searcher's perspective, when I'm looking at deals and when I'm considering this this criteria, it really is because it's going to give me the best opportunity at being successful. And it's what I always remind myself is the, the criteria and the structure is because it's setting me up for the for success in, this, in the same way that my investor group and my advisors are there to support me too. Might might add something because it's um, the, the interesting thing we see sometimes with searchers who are looking at opportunities is a greater willingness to compromise on these things than we have. Um, the bizarre thing that from our perspective is we can actually take that portfolio risk. We can, um, because we're investing across 20, we can say we can take you know, a lower recurring revenue business because on average we'll be okay. Compromising these three generally makes the result more binary for the, for the searcher. You know, we're okay with that, but we don't want you to be okay with that. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually remember having a, a similar conversation with Tom when we were looking at the deal and he was even saying, like, is this right for you? Does this suit you? Is this going to give you the best outcome? So it's, it's combining those, which is really important. And the, the third element that we're talking about is the, the funding the, the funding element um, and the, some of the criteria up there as well. But the question for Louis just simply is what does simplicity mean to you? Everyone has a different definition of it. Simplicity for, for us comes back to the one that we all understand because it is so transparent is actually the funded search model. So it's not to say, so, we, so when it's a funded search, we all know going in what the equity splits will be. We know how it works for a, for a sole searcher. We know how it works for a partnered search. We know it's palatable across the world. Um, it's simple and understandable. What we try and talk to most searches, funded, sorry, self-funded searches about is apply the mechanics of a funded search. Just don't have the funding at the beginning. Um, and then you've got the same deal structure and all you're doing is changing some of the percentages. Yeah. That's what makes it simple. When we occasionally get, we've seen quite a few funded, self-funded search deals where there's hybrids and there's mes debt. And, and what you start doing is trying to make it work. You start trying to un unpick it. And what it does for an investor who plays in the space is every deal looks different. And none of us want that. You know, it just makes it hard to actually um, keep track of everything that's happening. Yeah. I'd, I'd probably just, if I can add, 
two cents to that in, the, in the, just agreeing with the statements. Um, simplicity also, particularly at the end of the market that we're talking about, is just critical from a debt perspective. We're not... Um, there is no transactional efficiency in adding mezzanine finance or, or even thinking that you're going to do that um, yeah, in, a, in a deal that might be, you know, four or five million dollars. Um, the way there are ways to get around that in terms of, of structuring between pure senior and junior debt or what we call non-bank debt. But simplicity is important in all of those scenarios. Yeah. Another element we've got there is the balancing the share of upsides. Um, Suhil, you've been on both the searcher and the investor side, and it really that balance of um, returns for both parties is really important to get right. Um, but why is it important from both perspectives? Um, I mean, obviously, the balance needs to be there for, for the deal to, to work for both investors and operators. The question is kind of, what does that mean? And, and how, how do you share some of that? Um, Maybe if I think about it in two ways, there's, you know, there's the returns and then maybe there's the, the, the structure of the relationship between investors and, and the searcher. Yep. And I think both have to work for the searcher and the investor. So I think on the returns front, I think as an investor, you want to know if things go well, you have, there's enough upside for you. Um, and, and I think from an equity point of view, um, to make it real for searchers in the room, I think you know, a lot of deals you know, equity investor base cases are coming in around that 30% IRR, I think, or, or thereabouts. Um, so that's one thing you want as an equity investor. I think the other is the, the downside protection. So I think, you know, as I was talking about earlier, you want to know if things don't go so well, um, um, that you have some protection. And that can be, you know, most often, well, I guess there's two ways to get that protection. One is through preference in the capital structure. So, so some kind of preference to the searcher. Um, but often the deal structure offers some protection too, because you'll have some contingent payment or deferred consideration. And, and what you want to see is in, in kind of a flat case, investors are still doing okay. There's still kind of a low to mid-teens kind of IRR return. Um, and, and then from a searcher's point of view, I think, you know, once those investor boxes, and I, I was a partner self-funded searcher, so I think, you know, once those investors boxes are ticked, I think it's, you know, um, there's a bit of a mindset shift, I think, sometimes from, from traditional private equity investing to search investing, because once those boxes are ticked, as far as I'm concerned, the rest is the searches. And, and, and I kind of believe that from a searcher point of view and also from an investor point of view. Um, so, you know, um, which requires moving beyond a kind of a 20, 30, 40, even 50% um, um, equity share for, for, an, um, for an operator, because there is more risk for an operator than there would be in a private equity environment. So I think... On the returns part, that's how I, how I see it is, you know, there's some investor boxes to tick, but then the rest is the searchers who's frankly doing all the work to, to find the deal and then, and then to run the company. Um, and then there's, I guess, the, the, the structure part to it. And um, from the investor point of view, obviously you want to know the searcher is committed and, um, um, and will stick through with a company in, in hard times. And, and I think, you know, the most obvious way to get that kind of comfort is, is through, you know, vestings and hurdles and different kinds of tried and tested structures. Um, but they're not the only way. So I think, you know, depending on the deal, the search of the scenario, um, I would certainly, you know, for example, there are some deals, not many, where, where um, searches are putting on director guarantees and, and underwriting, you know, uh, underwriting debt themselves personally or, 
or they're making significant personal contributions. And so I feel there's other ways to get comfort on how all in the searcher is. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, um, there's that structure part to it. But the structure also needs to work for the searcher. So I think, you know, the searcher, depending on what the searcher wants to do, right? Are you, are you kind of in this for, you want to buy and you, you know, an exit in five and seven years? Or do you want to be able to have the option to hold the asset forever? And, you know, there, that's one area I think where funded versus self-funded searching, there's a bit, of a, uh, a bit of a difference maybe because I think the traditional search model I think works, uh, is a little bit geared towards the exit um, whereas the, the self-funded search model creates opportunities um, to hold a business for the longer term. So I think long-winded answer, but I think, yeah, you, yeah. you know, there's a return sharing, but then there's a structure and it's got to work for both, yeah. both sides, um, yeah. not just investors, but, but, you know, searches and what they want to do. And I think that's a good segue into the summary of the three different elements and how they actually interrelate and making a consideration on one will impact the other, you know, who the searcher is and what their preferences are and how they're funded um, in, in, somewhat, in some ways influences the opportunity type and the funding type and the holding periods and things like that. So we've talked about all three in summary, you know, the, the searcher plus a good opportunity and the right funding structure is what makes a deal backable. Um, a open question to the panel. In terms of these three different elements that we've talked about, is one more important to you than the other? Searcher. Searcher. I think all three are non-negotiable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think they all have to come together for it to yeah. Yeah. kind of work. Better. Yeah. Uh, in, in any hierarchy, any preference? Ah. Uh, no. <laughs> I'm asking a loaded question there. <laughs> so, so I'll, so I'll explain mine. Mine's searcher because the searcher brings the other two. Yep. So without, we, there's actually no scenario where, where the wrong searcher will actually give us the right opportunity and right structure. Yeah. Ultimately, it's all three, right, is what we're saying. Yeah. So now we're going to have a little bit of fun with some uh, scenarios. Um, so in, in these scenarios, we're assuming that that first element or one of the elements of searcher has been, has been ticked off. Um, and we've got these three different opportunities, uh, three different types of businesses, an NDIS service provider, a SaaS business, and a food manufacturer um, with different kind of uh, profiles. Um, and I guess what I would like each of the, the panel members to do is, is kind of pick apart the opportunity that you would pick and kind of explain why, why you would pick that one and if anything, what you would change about that potential. Is that with Tom? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, well, I'm gonna be a little controversial and actually pick number two um, as a starting point. And the reason or the most important element in understanding that choice is that that is not a senior debt deal. So as I was talking about earlier with the definition of debt and sort of where where that would sit at a major bank funding structure, uh, that ain't going to work. <laughs> the major bank funding structure ain't going to work with, a, with business number two. However, it is absolutely a doable deal, um, mainly because of the ARR. It's, it's the, the consistent returns and the growth trajectory of that business warrants um, a stable uh, set of cash flows, which ultimately can be used to service debt in the short term, uh, less than probably what would be required at a major bank. But with the growth trajectory and stability, it's on a path to major bank within a couple of years. So that deal would traditionally start 
at you know a higher cost of debt funding and then work towards a major bank in a couple of years time second to that and i'm going to have two choices because i'm greedy uh, <laughs> is number three so number three is absolutely a debt deal that is very stable uh, again stability and consistency is absolutely the key elements that we're looking for awesome thank you sahil it's funny you're, i think Maybe this is a debt. The debt versus equity thing is is interesting because from as an equity investor, that second one was probably my probably be my last. Um, but just because it, it's just risky, I think. So I think it's just the the exit risk, the market risk. So it's a, um, you know, paying paying you know raising 80, eighteen million dollars of equity for a growing but one and a half million EBITDA business. You'd really need to rely on the. All your cash is in servicing the debt in the five years. So on a typical five-year model, you really need to rely on that exit coming in at four times ARR. So I think that would be on on from an equity investor, pretty, pretty you know, all your returns are back-ended, and who knows what'll be happening in the market. Um, I, I I like number one, um, just because that deal is is um, pretty. Pretty crazy. <laughs> it's a 1.2 million equity raise for a, for a 2 million EBITDA business. It can service the debt. I think the question you'd ask yourself as a searcher is, you know, about the industry and, and disability services and how you feel about that. Um, personally, I guess a couple of things to look into. I think, you know, interesting that the business isn't growing very fast, 5%. So it's not, you know, as NDIS has boomed, it's not just a, a government money funded business. It's been pretty stable for a longer term. Um, and also, fundamentally, it's just an interesting sector, I think, because, you know, funding to the sector has doubled in the last few years, change in funding model, great opportunity for a hungry entrepreneur to, to do well. But that's certainly where you'd focus your diligence, is just where you sit in the industry, um, where your funding comes from, you know, how risky is it? Are you the non-negotiable non accommodation provider or are you the person driving the vans for people to go to community events? Where are you in the in the funding structure of disability, I think. Um, but otherwise, yeah, it looks like a pretty good deal to me. Over to you, Louis. Yeah, so number one's my least. Um, <laughs> Funny. Um, we didn't plan this at all. Yeah, no. <laughs> this actually happened on the call. We, we actually argued over this on the, on the pre-call. Um, number one's my least for the stroke of pen risk. So NDIS funding, government-backed, um, change of legislation, and the industry will either thrive or die. Um, currently it's dying, um, which is why I have a, neg a negative disposition to NDIS um, organisations at the moment. And I sit on the board of one. Um, the, so there's that preconceived idea that when I see that increased regulation requires investment, it's investment in systems, processes and people, how, how much is that going to hit the profitability in, in that space? Um, number two is my second preferred. Um, we actually like SaaS businesses. We understand them from a, a revenue model perspective and, a, and how the revenue model actually kicks off cash with just growth. Um, so it's hard not to get excited by SaaS um, when they're working well. Um, it, there's not a lot that I could say I would change about that deal um, other than... Um, actually, it's already there. We changed it. So the, the earn out is quite high. Um, that's what gives me comfort on the SaaS business. Um, but my preferred is actually number three. Um, it's eminently financeable. 
Um, it's a nuts and bolts business. You can actually see it. You can actually look at it and follow product on the way through. Um, means you can actually put your arms around it and it's actually a simple model. The issue we sometimes see with SaaS is there is the black box in the middle. And so you've got to trust that the software is being written well when you buy it. And if it's not, then you're in, in for a power of pain. Um, the thing that I change on the, on the third deal is actually around recurring revenue. Um, but so we know that deal. So that's a deal that's active at the moment. Um, and when you look through into the recurring revenue, it's actually quite an interesting mix and quite um, has really low customer concentration. So recurring revenue is one element, customer concentration is another element, um, and growth is another element. So like to number three. Yeah, awesome. So I hope we've kind of illustrated how many variables there are. Um, trying to simplify it down to three and then overlaying that into particular scenarios just changes everything. It's definitely something I've really learned in the last nine months of my search is uh, it's not as black and white as, you know, the, the search fund criteria makes it makes it look. Um, Can I ask a question? Yeah. I'd actually be, because this was actually quite a hard exercise when we were going through it. Um, so I'd be keen to know everyone else's. So, just so that we can tell you you're wrong, who, who voted for number one? Number two? You're all legends, number three. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Any questions? Any thoughts? Anyone want to disagree with any of the panel members? I highly encourage it. <laughs> Have you seen a lot of variability in the Yeah. No, it's a good question. And so I'll, I'll just make sure everybody heard it. Is there a, a bunch of variability? around the levels of debt in the various deals that we've done. So first, I'd define that in terms of the level of debt. There's probably three different ways we can think about that. One would be just a straight debt to equity ratio. So um, as, as a guiding principle, um, 100% is the answer. There is, there is yeah, significant variability uh, from you know, a highly leveraged transaction back down to you know, sub well below 50%, so um, it's not the only metric we need to think about in defining that. Um, obviously, one of the key things, as I've just talked about, being the searcher uh, helps us define that. Uh, but then obviously, we're starting to go to the analysis that I was somewhat dismissive of if we haven't got that first uh, kind of you know, stage gate passed. So leverage defined by debt to equity uh, traditionally, at a major bank, is is sitting in that sort of you know 30 to 50 kind of range. There's absolutely a stage gate at that 50 level. Uh, there's going to be one of the pretty good reasons if you're going to define it as senior debt to be going above that kind of level. But as I said, in defining the definition, these are subjective tools, right? These are things that we are thinking about and trying to help us articulate risk. And those risks aren't just about uh, you know, the profitability of the company today. It's the things that, you know, I think Louis and Sahil have articulated quite well, which includes industry risks. What's the position on that? There is absolutely no benefit uh, to a debt provider to thinking through 
the future trajectory uh, in terms of the opportunity upside if the business hasn't been proven today or hasn't been performing to this point. Uh, that is absolutely equity risk because it's unproven. Um, so thinking through those points, it's sort of that's why I didn't choose the NDIS example. Um, I think I agree. I agreed with Louis on that point. I do think there's a little bit too much risk from a regulatory perspective there. Um, and certainly doesn't benefit the debt structure, and that's absolutely the hat that I'm wearing when I'm making those claims. Uh, but similarly, you know, taking that that further beyond industry risk, it's uh, you know the operator themselves in terms of what might be sort of sitting within that operational structure of an NDIS group. Um, Sahil and I actually had a conversation about this last night. Uh, I, I sort of see, well, certainly the, there's, a, there's a number of different flavors to NDIS businesses. And so I guess the flavor we were thinking of was the operational kind of flavor of in-home in or in-care support kind of thing, yeah? Yeah, well, I, and often for a searcher, you're, you're, um, I guess it's the next question. You know, there's an industry risk, yeah. but what is the risk? And I think, you know, understanding where you, you know, there's $22 billion of government funding into the sector. Are you the first billion that's going to go or you're the last billion that's going to go. And I think getting to that level of understanding of a company is important in, in diligence. And, you know, can you get comfort that, you know, my service ending is a catastrophic loss for, for a person or for government and my funding's pretty safe and, and so on and so forth. But yeah. actually just on the point on debt, I think the other thing as a searcher and um, that's been interesting is not just the leverage levels, but how it's measured. Um, having seen this, and if you know what, how do you treat the vendor deferred? How do you treat the deferred consideration? You know, is it 50% of EVs or 50% of initial purchase price? There's a lot of, I found different banks and deal with all those things a bit differently, which can make a huge difference to search returns and equity returns. So, and but the same principles apply in, in sort of thinking about those things. So, if you, if you think about a business and the operational structure, uh, if I go back to the, the NDIS example, we've got a team of people, might be a mum who was you know, a, a nurse in her past, operating with a dad who might have had some professional career to set up this business with you know, maybe a team of 10 people that are going into in-home care. That's a fairly um, focused business in terms of a regional perspective. Uh, there is operational risk there in terms of people going into other people's homes. Uh, you know, working with people in disability contexts. Uh, and so we're going to think about that as a cottage industry style business. There isn't an upscale in that business to be able to say we can just do that nationally without significant support from, you know, and capability from a searcher's perspective. So their ability to scale that business. Um, you know, there's some sort of analogistic kind of traits there to sort of what we saw in childcare in sort of the early sort of 2000s um, in the context that cottage industry and scale with overhead cost to support further scale uh, kind of runs out of steam uh, in some cases, right? You've got to be pretty special to do that. Um, so sort of circling back to the point, it's thinking through all of those elements and then your overlaying structure into it uh, if your business at a 50% leverage ratio or kind of just debt to equity again, and you're actually financing that with a whole bunch of vendor finance payments or earn out payments, which are contractual in obligation and ultimately represent leverage to that business structure, you're not really talking about a true 50-50 ratio. You're actually talking about something quite different. 
And so all of that does need to kind of go into the sort of thinking, again, subjectively, uh, and that's why you get variation, but subjectively in the context of the overall risk profile of that business and how much are we willing to push that recurring nature of business model, what it has done in the past will make that happen again and ultimately the debt gets repaid. Um, the, you know, in, an, in a worst case scenario, we're looking at a, a position where the debt gets repaid is essentially that subjective line. Um, nobody is predicting a loss uh, when they're signing off a debt term uh, in that sense. And if they are, they're going to be wanting to think about what's the option in that case, which might then think, you know, fall to security or sec what we call secondary exits. So things like you know, equity and houses and personal guarantees and those sorts of things. Uh, but the starting point has to be that it stands on its own two feet uh, in the initial analysis. Awesome. Any other questions? In a few minutes. Go on, yeah. no, all yours. <laughs> I really sure I was going to throw it to you. Um, yeah, no, so, so working capital always sits, is, is a core component of what we've got to look at, right? And so quite often, particularly in the early stages of assessment of a deal, uh, you know, frankly, you haven't got a lot of time as a searcher, I think, certainly from the outside looking in to really kind of jump all the way into working capital. Uh, but as the deal evolves, that's absolutely something that we've got to think about. Uh, and the first point in thinking about working capital is actually understanding it. So uh, often, particularly in deals of the size that we're talking about, um, the owners won't understand it. They haven't really thought about it. They actually inherently know it because they're managing cash in, cash out for many, many years in some cases. They know that they've got to pay their BAS every quarter. They know that they've got to pay the wages every fortnight. Um, but fundamentally, how much that is quantified to um, is quite often hidden, um, particularly when you're thinking about annual financials or assessing it at an annual level. Uh, and so one of the things, obviously, from an analysis perspective is you're jumping into a monthly view. That usually happens a little bit further into a deal or at least once you're a bit more invested in the deal. Uh, but certainly, we're not divorcing a leverage or a subjective definitional view of what is the right debt level in this business that does not get divorced from working capital and acquisition debt. They're two different things. One needs to persist and support the business, particularly through a growth cycle, but we still have to measure both in, tan or, yeah, in concert in the context of where that subjective line sits. All right. Yeah, Mama? Um, so I don't, I don't know if this question will make, make sense, but it, it, I've got a question around um, where does capital intensity bomb out in the, in the search, um, search fund model? So, so there's a... Yeah. Yeah, Especially if you talk about brick yep. and mortar businesses, probably close to sort of um, you know primary primary resources, etc. Like, is there a is there a cutoff point where the amount of capital that is required has just become? It might be a bit exciting, exciting just yep. to operate, but it's just got that excessive 
investors? Is there a good rule of thumb around that? Well, you absolutely need to answer that question from an investor perspective. But purely from a debt perspective, uh, the, the delta falls to equity. Hence why it's your answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, it almost becomes a little bit how we were talking about debt and how you define what debt is. And how do you define the ratios for debt? Because capital intensity can be defined lots of different ways, you know, from the proportion of the assets that make up the, the purchase price. If there's lots of fixed assets that make up the entirety of the purchase price, it actually is more fundable you know, you, if they are movable assets. So you can get different forms of asset finance. When it starts turning into more of an operational phase and the question's not around capital intensity, it's more around how efficient does the earnings fall through to cash. And if there's ongoing investment required every year to keep pace with growth or to even just maintain, um, then you run into troubles with debt serviceability and equity serviceability. It really depends on what you mean by capital intensity. You know, if it's a, and I'll use two very extremes, if, if it's buying a brand new piece of equipment that doesn't require any new additional stuff done to it and it can fund, it can support um, twice the growth that it's currently got, but it makes up 100% of the purchase price, I'd be in that deal every day because you can heavily finance it. You know that you just got to run it efficiently. It seems at the, from, from a capital perspective, highly intensive. But if you then throw and say, we're buying actually something that doesn't have a lot of fixed assets at the beginning, but every year you're going to have to be spending more on it, it then becomes really hard just, just to return the debt. And then the debt ratio comes down and then the equity ratio goes up and it becomes really hard to service, you know, the equity as well. So it depends. It's something that you would have to work through and understand how it scales and, and what happens in a do-nothing in your low case. So if the low case is you still have to spend lots of money, you're going to find the low case won't give you a mid-teens. The low case will give you a, you know, a low single digit. Yeah. Just maybe just to, to add to that, I think it just needs to be factored into how you value a business, I think. So you need to just see how much, as Louis is saying, drops through the cash, um, you know, how much you, debt you can fit on there as a result and, and, and value the business accordingly. Um, and often I think in search deals, that can be a difficult thing for vendors to understand um, because, you know, you get to a point where, you know, because I guess, especially in this part of the market, people are trained to think about EBITDA multiples and, and, and not necessarily cash flow. And, and so you, you kind of end up in situations where they're not getting the, the multiple thought they thought they would or, or the asset value versus the, the business value um, is starting to, to kind of, you know, the asset values might be worth, you know, the liquidation might be preferable to a business sale. Or, and also obviously the growth. So the growth capex, the return on invested capital, you need to factor that into kind of how much you pay for the business and, and, and make sure you can get returns out of there, so. And maybe just a follow-up question, that's so where you would require, say, significant commercial uh, property to, to operate this business, like um, asset appreciation, does that get, um, in, in these deals, how, how does that get treated? Do you find that investors typically discount that to what you, what, yeah, any, any, any insight from that? Yeah, if you I, have a short answer, because we're going to have to wrap up in a minute. Sure. <laughs> um, I'll give you a quick answer. 
um, take take the asset appreciation or take the the if you need commercial property, fund that separately. Like actually put it into a separate vehicle, not for the not because you might do that, but actually understand what the core business performance is versus what the return you expect on your piece of property, because you can then sensitise both. You can actually look at it and say, what happens to property if this goes up and down? What happens to the business if this goes up and down? Thinking about the funding model of that is absolutely what we would do synthetically anyway. So we would absolutely think about what is an appropriate structure, uh, debt structure for a long-term asset that ultimately has some realisable value in that secondary exit scenario, right? Uh, which is ultimately why you see the definition of what might be leveraged against that scenario as higher than what you would against just a going concern business without that kind of asset backing. Um, but I, I mean, a, an extreme example of this would be a storage business. So, you know, uh, a storage business that has and is completely reliant upon its assets, but ultimately is driving an, an operating outcome in terms of a cash flow business. Uh, yeah, we saw through and prior to the GFC, the separation of those two things legally and ownership wise mm -hmm. through the GFC, we were bringing them back together. So you have to think through the cycle and ultimately what assets are required to produce the cash flow that's ultimately needed and assess it in its parts, but with a mind to both. Thank you, everyone. Thanks to my amazing panel. Thanks, Thanks much. Yet another great session at the ETA Forum. It's so valuable to have that range of people on the stage giving us their perspective on what makes a deal ultimately backable. I guess in summary for me, some of the key points that came out from a debt point of view, there are lots of things that debt providers consider when determining the credit risk on a deal and whether or not they should lend. But ultimately, particularly for those good lenders, it always comes back to character. And when they mean character, they're talking about who's involved and what's the skills and experience and mindset and approach that those people are going to take. So I guess if you're a searcher, that means not only focusing on what you bring to the deal, but also really making sure that you've got a strong register of investors behind you because the lender will consider that capability and experience when assessing character. But also if you're an investor, Look at your co-investors and also the searcher you're backing and consider the range and depth of expertise that you're bringing to the deals that might come across the table. The second point is that fundamentally stable point. You know, How do you protect the downside? One of the great benefits of searches and asset class is that the downside is more protected than VC or startup um, because it's got a track record and some existing cash flow. So really make sure that you're taking advantage of that. Now, I'm not one as an investor who necessarily needs to be completely underwritten from kind of recurring revenue, but I do think it's important that you, there is some stability there that you're buying into. The next one from a business point of view is looking at the margins. And the point was made on this panel that good margins are a strong indicator of a good deal. The lens that I'd add to that would be not only good existing margins, because there's lots of things that you might be able to improve, but importantly, good potential margins. It's highly likely that gross margin is reasonable and earnings margin is lower than what it could be in a lot of these deals. And so one of the opportunities is to go in and improve that. So even if there's a pathway to good margin, that's usually good enough for me. And finally, and potentially one of the most important factors that I usually look for is the fit between the business and the searcher themselves. 
one of the most important lead indicators of success in any of these acquisitions is going to be the fact that the searcher themselves who will become the CEO is well suited to the business and is excited about the business that they're about to run because that will translate into energy and grit and passion and all the things that you need to fight through the battle of the journey ahead. So I think that fit between the searcher and the business, and if you're an investor, look for the sparkle in their eye when they start talking about it. That's usually a pretty good indicator that you've found something that's going to be a winner.